Today's sermon comes from Genesis 3:14 through 24. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In the movie Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam, and he's trying to get around the traffic jam, and so he's taking a bunch of turns. He doesn't know where he's going, and every turn kind of leads him down a darker road, and eventually he finds himself in a, in a pretty rough neighborhood. Uh, and then, then the nightmare of all nightmares happens. His fancy sports car breaks down. He calls a tow truck, but as he's waiting for the tow truck, five local toughs surround his car and begin to threaten him. And then just in time, the tow truck shows up. Driver gets out, earnest, kind of friendly man, and he starts to hook up the man's car, and these local toughs begin to protest. He's this tow truck driver is interrupting their meal. And uh, the tow truck driver grabs the leader of the group, he pulls him aside, and he gives him a five-sentence introduction to sin. Here's what he said. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Now, if that's not an accurate description of our world, everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. Our world isn't right. And we know that at a cultural level, our lives aren't right. That you know deep down in your heart that something is not right. And that raises two questions, two primary questions. Why? Why is the world the way it is? Why are our lives so hard? Why is there so much pain and so much hurt, so much despair? 
And then that leads to the second question. If life is so hard, where's the hope? Where is the hope in the struggle? If you've come here this morning and you're struggling, you're in the right place. Welcome to the club. Life is hard. Life is a struggle. And yet we're going to find the reason why it's hard, but then we're going to hear the hope that we have in the midst of it. So let's start with why is life so hard? Genesis 3 is an ancient text. It was written thousands of years ago. And yet it vividly and accurately describes the world that we live in. And Genesis 1 and 2 starts with paradise. It starts with a world that moves from disorder to order through Adam and Eve's subduing and caring and keeping God's garden. But then in Genesis 3, after they rebel against God, we see it moving back into disorder. Now, now what happened when our first parents disobeyed God? What happened? Well, they became like God, as the serpent promised them. They became like God. They, they inserted themselves in God's place and took it, upon, took it upon themselves to have the right to decide what was right and what was wrong. And that was catastrophic. The world began to unravel when that happened. Think about a, a choir without a conductor. Think about a group of people singing without a conductor. Each person decides when they're going to start to sing. Each person decides when they're going to stop singing. Each person decides when they're going to sing a certain note and a different note. Can you imagine what that would sound like? would not be a sweet sound. When our first parents became leaderless, when they decided that they were going to be their own source of authority, as one author puts it, the choir of creation began to grind on in discord. Without a leader and with mankind assuming authority, everything began to unravel. Now, what, did, what does this discord look like? What's the disorder look like? There's, there's three kinds of disorder, three kinds of chaos that we see in Genesis 3 that descended upon God's world. There was a relational, relational chaos, spiritual chaos, and physical chaos. Look first at relational chaos. Last, her, last half of verse 16. To the woman, he said, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, how are we to understand this verse, specifically the word desire? Well, the same exact word appears one chapter later in Genesis 4, verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The word desire there is describing sin's attempt to control you. And the command is to rule over it, meaning to keep it from controlling you. So there we have this description of a struggle for control. That exact same word in verbiage is used in Genesis 3.16. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. It's describing what happened in marriage at the fall. Suddenly marriage became this struggle for control. To love and cherish became to desire and to dominate. 
The woman seeking to control her husband through manipulation. The husband seeking to control his wife through harshness, abuse of authority. What, what was a picture of two allies moving forward locked arm in arm suddenly became two enemies battling for control. And at the core of that was a loss of trust. And when that trust was lost, transparency was lost. And now suddenly there was hiding and there was positioning and there was manipulating, right? You think about any relationship. When you don't trust someone, what do you do? When you don't trust someone, what do you do? You play it close to the vest, don't you? You don't, you don't open up. You're not transparent because you don't trust what somebody would do with your heart transparent before them. That's what happened in marriage, but it's broader than that. That defines human relationships. Human relationships are, are wrought by this struggle for control, which leads to hiding, which leads to deep conflict, frustration. If you find marriage to be hard, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but every hand would go up. This is where it began. If you find relationships to be hard, this is where it began. This is why life is hard, relational chaos. Second, life's hard because of relational chaos, but second, it's hard because of spiritual chaos. Look at verse 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the word enmity means hostility or opposition. So how are we to understand it when God says, I will put enmity or I will put opposition between you serpent and the woman. What's that mean? Well, it means that in God's sovereign grace, he converted the woman's affection for Satan, sinful affection for Satan, to righteous affection for himself. God did that. He created opposition. Before that, Adam and Eve, had, had their affections were towards the serpent and, and what he was calling them to do and tempting them to do. And God says, no, I will put opposition. I will convert your affections for Satan to affections for myself. And when I do that, there's going to be struggle. There's going to be enmity or opposition, hostility. There's going to be a personal battle, internal, in the human heart. You and I face that every day. The battle between good and evil that happens in our world happens in our hearts on a personal level. Spiritual chaos. Paul writes about it in Romans 7. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. Can anyone raise their hand on that this past week? Everyone can. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. There's the spiritual chaos. There's the battle, the internal struggle. But it's not just on a personal level. It's on a cultural level. We see this opposition between good and evil on a cultural level. I mean, it's right before us now with the coronavirus, right, that has killed many, collapsing financial markets, disrupting business, threatening security. We see it with the recent, I say recent, but fairly fun, recent phenomenon of mass shootings that threaten our security and our safety. 
We see it with predatory behavior on the internet that threatens the safety, purity, and security of our children. The battle is waging. There is a spiritual battle, and Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 that the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. It's easy to forget that. There is spiritual chaos that makes life hard. So you have relational chaos that makes life hard. You have spiritual chaos internally in the heart and on a cultural level that makes life really difficult, makes it a struggle. And then finally, you have physical chaos. Look at the first half of verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. The command to be fruitful and multiply became very difficult and very painful. The birthing process itself became wrought with pain. The ability to conceive became wrought with difficulty. The difficulty of raising children, the emotional pain of just raising children, right? pain entered the picture, difficulty, hardness. And then you go to verses 17 to 19. To Adam, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Work itself becomes wrought with pain and difficulty. And we all experience that on a daily basis. When we head back to the office tomorrow morning, right? work is wrought with pain. And one of the reasons that work is so frustrating is that we envision much more than we're able to accomplish. We envision much more in work than we're able to accomplish. And the reason we can't accomplish everything is, is two reasons. One is lack of ability. The other is in, in the environment around us, resistance around us. So sometimes we get frustrated at work because we can't, do, we can't get the job done. We don't know enough or we don't have a skill set. But then sometimes we have the skill set and we can get it done, but then there's resistance around us, right? A bad boss bureaucratic red tape, market conditions, whatever it may be, right, that makes work incredibly difficult. What that says to you is that frustration in work is the norm. So Genesis 3 would tell us that frustration is the norm. Now, when life is hard, relational chaos, spiritual chaos, uh, physical chaos. When life's hard, what's the natural human response? There's actually two extremes. The natural human response when life is hard runs to one of two extremes. On the one extreme is idealism. On the other extreme is cynicism. Let me explain both of those. Idealism says, I can change the world. I can make things different. I can get rid of the chaos. My relational, spiritual, physical chaos, I can get rid of it. I can change it. I can change the world. That's idealism. Cynicism is nothing ever changes. So don't get your hopes up, right? Idealism and cynicism. Idealism says I'm going to fix it. Cynicism says, I can't fix it. And when I can't fix it, I'm going to pretend like the chaos doesn't bother me. 
and that's frostbite of the soul. That's when you become numb, pretending like the chaos doesn't bother you. And usually you start with idealism and pretty quickly you get to cynicism when the idealism doesn't work. In the Kingdom of Ice is journalist Hampton Side's compelling account of the failed 19th century polar expedition of the USS Jeannette. It was a ship that was captained by George DeLong, and he had a map. And this map of the North Pole and the surrounding region had been given to him by a man named Heinrich Peterman. It turned out to be a diluted map, but this map said that there was this gateway between the ice towards the North Pole that would open up into this just vast ocean. And so George DeLong and his crew on the USS Jeannette set off with this map searching for the gateway that would shoot them into the North Pole vast open waters. And quickly they found out when they were surrounded by perilous ice that there was no such gateway. And Hampton Sides, in recounting it, said this about the team. The team had to shed its organizing ideas in all their unfounded romance. That's another way of saying in all of their idealism. It was based off of a faulty map and to replace them with a reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is. Idealism is living your life based on a map that does not describe the world as it truly is. Genesis 3 gives a realistic map. It's a realistic map of the world that we live in and why it is so hard. But it's also a realistic map that doesn't send you to either extreme of idealism or cynicism. It sends you another way, and that way is called hope. Hope that in the struggle, in the hardness of life, there is hope that is neither idealism nor cynicism. So what is the hope? What is the hope in the struggle? Like I said, if you are here and you are struggling, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. And Genesis 3 has words of hope for you. There's three pillars of hope in this passage. The first one, the first pillar of hope is the promise of God. Look again at verse 15. I will put enmity between you, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The he here is referring to the Messiah, the Christ to come. The you is referring to the serpent or to Satan. What it's saying using the imagery of the serpent is that the Messiah to come will crush your head, serpent, in other words, you will be crushed under the heel of the Messiah. But, serpent, you will bruise. You will bruise. What it meant is that Jesus Christ would come and defeat Satan, but it wouldn't come without suffering. His, his suffering and his death would be the bruising, 
but ultimately his suffering and death is what would crush and defeat Satan. And what you note here, and this is powerful, is that the promise of God to defeat evil, to defeat Satan, to defeat sin, comes before the punishment is handed out to Adam and Eve and to creation. In other words, God's promise to rescue ultimately did not depend on the response of our first parents. God did not say, let me give Adam and Eve their consequences, and if they respond well, then I'll crush the serpent. No, God made the promise, I will crush the serpent. I will defeat evil. And the beauty of that is that God's promise to do that ultimately does not depend on what you or I do. It depends on what his son Jesus Christ has done, what his son Jesus Christ is doing, and what Jesus will do. When you anchor your hope into anything but that promise of God, whether you anchor your hope into a favorable circumstance or whether you anchor your hope into the promise of a person, you will end up in idealism or cynicism. Actually, you will start in idealism. And then when you get burned by idealism, you'll move to cynicism. But if your hope is anchored in the promise of God, it looks very different. Talked about an idealist and a cynic. Hope is the position of a realist. A realist, I'll call it a gospel realist, is someone who has been through the fire, through the hardness of life, and been purified. A cynic, or one who is despairing and cynical, is one that has been through the fire, the hardness of life, and has been burned. See the difference? A, realism, a realist is an idealist who has been through the fire and been purified. A cynic is one who has been through the fire, or an idealist, has, a cynic is an idealist who has been through the fire and been burned. Right? There's hope in the promise of God, not in circumstances, not in people, ultimately in the promise of God. That's the first pillar, the promise. Second pillar of hope is the grace of God. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, now this is an ironic verse. The, the name Eve sounds like the Hebrew for life giver. At this point in the story, Adam and Eve are the furthest from a description as life giver as possible. I mean, by their decision to rebel against God, they have just plunged the world into death and darkness, hardly giving life. But what we see here is that God has not given up on them. In fact, God gives his promise in verse 15, and what we see is that Adam is listening. That Adam is restored to God because he believes God's promise that through the woman, a child will be born, offspring will be born to crush the head of Satan. God hadn't given up on Adam and Eve as much of a mess as they had made. And Adam believed that. 
Instead, Eve, the mother of all living, in response to, to believing that God was bringing rescue and restoration. And this is the story of the Bible. You realize that through the Bible, God uses over and over, he uses misfits and those that have made an absolute mess of things. And that's the reason why there's hope for you this morning. You are not damaged goods that are unusable. When you look at the scriptures and who God uses, starting with Abraham, moving to Jacob, then to the prostitute Rahab, to Tamar, to David, all of them made it into the genealogy of Jesus. The reason God used them was not because they were perfect. Read their stories. It was far from it. No, the reason that he used them is because they trusted him and they trusted in his provision. So if you're here this morning and you feel like you're damaged goods, you feel like you've made a mess of things, you feel like there's no way God can use me, would use me, I want you to see something very different in how he operates. Question is, how and why can God use you? How and why can God use someone as broken as you? Let me start with the how. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Hmm. As I mentioned last week, an animal had to die for Adam and Eve to have their nakedness and their shame and their guilt clothed. Someone had to die. It was the beginning of what we see in the Old Testament of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals being sacrificed, blood being shed to cover the sin of God's people, ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ being the once for all sacrifice when he shed his blood. See, God can use you, not because you're perfect. You're far from it. God used Abraham and Rahab and Tamar not because they were perfect, but because they trusted him and they trusted in his provision for their sin. And it's the same reason why God can use you or how he uses you is because Jesus Christ, when he shed his blood, covered your past, present, and future sin. When he died on the cross, all of your past sin that you can look at now and see but not only that, all of the future sin you will commit has been covered. That's why, that's, that's how he can use you. Because your sin is covered, and it's simply by you trusting in what he's done for you in Christ. Second question, why does God choose to use you? That's a different question. You could say, hey, what I've done and, and how I've, I've, I've just walked away from God and I've been absolutely offensive to him, why would he ever want to use me? I understand that he can because of what Christ has done for me, but why would he want to? Look at verse 22. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. On the surface, this verse sounds like harsh punishment. 
It sounds like God saying, get these sinners away from me. Look what they've done to my garden I gave them. They don't deserve to be in my presence. Banish them. That's what it reads or sounds like it reads. But look again at the end of verse 22. God says, keep them away from the garden because I don't want them to eat from the tree of life and live forever in the fallen state that they're in. I don't want them to eat from the tree of life and eternally live in this sinful state separated from me. I love them too much. And the reason I'm banishing them from the garden is because I don't want them to eat from the tree of life and be forever separated from me. The reason why God would choose to use you is because he actually loves you. That may be hard for some of you to stomach or think about, but God actually loves you. And he shows us that here in Genesis 3. He doesn't love the knuckleheaded decisions you make and that I make, but he loves you. In the same way that a child's sin and disobedience does not change the love of the parents towards that child, so your sin and disobedience does not change God's love for you. And he will love you away from that sin and disobedience. What's your hope in the struggle? The promise of God, the grace of God, and finally, the power of God. Look at verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In addition to this being an act of grace, an act of protection for our first parents, this was also a demonstration of God's power. Because what it says is that there was no way that Adam and Eve were getting back into the garden on their own. They couldn't save themselves. And the cherubim that blocked the way are the cherubim we see in the scriptures that are guardians of the Holy of Holies in the temple, which is God's presence. In the temple, there was a curtain right, that separated God's presence from the people. And on that curtain were, were embroidered cherubim. And we learn in the Gospels at Jesus' death that that curtain that had the cherubim on it, guarding the way to God, we learned that that, court, that curtain was torn in two. From top to bottom, not from bottom up, to assure us there was no man that ripped the curtain, that it ripped from top to bottom throwing open the way to God. The cherubim had been dismissed. And the way back to God was wide open for you, for me. What that means is that your access to God in the struggle ultimately is not dependent on what you do or don't do. It depends on what Christ has done. And Christ has thrown open the door has thrown open the curtain into God's presence. And you have access to his presence. What that means when we run Genesis 3 all the way through to Christ's death and resurrection is that you're in one of two places. 
You're either in Adam, represented by Adam, and banished from God's presence, or you're in Christ. You're represented by Christ and welcomed into God's presence. You say, well, how do I go from being in Adam to being in Christ? Simply by believing God's promise, trusting what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. Trusting Christ. It's by faith. It's not by anything you do. It's not by five or 10 years of good living. It's not by one day of good living. It's it's nothing you can do to go from being represented by Adam and banished from God's presence to being represented by Christ and welcomed into his presence. That transfer happens not by anything you do. It simply happens by faith, by trusting Jesus Christ. And the scriptures even say that faith is a gift. It's all of grace. The promise of God, the grace of God, the power of God to save you are all moving towards the culmination of the story of our world. The tree of life from which Adam and Eve are banished in Genesis 3 becomes the healing of the nations in Revelation 22. Listen to the end of the story, the culmination of the story of our world. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree of life were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night, which means darkness and evil and sin will be no more. In an article in Christianity Today, Andy Crouch said this, so powerful. Human beings can live for 40 days without food. Four days without water. And four minutes without air. But we cannot live for four seconds without hope. And hope is not idealism. And it's certainly not cynicism. It's gospel realism. It is an act of trust, not just one time, but a daily, minute, moment by moment act of trust in the bedrock promise of God, grace of God, and power of God. Let's pray. Father, you are such an incredibly gracious God. You are such a loving God. The story of the scriptures is the story of mankind running away from you. We looked at last week, we are the hiders, you are the seeker. And you have sought us in Christ. You have won us through Christ. You defend us through Christ. You protect us through Christ. Father, I pray for those here that maybe look at their life and would classify themselves as damaged goods or that they would look at their life and say, there's no way God can use me or even wants to use me. 
Father, would you convince them of your love, of your deep love for them, a deep love that cost you to lose everything. Father, there are so many here that are struggling deeply right now that seem day by day to be on the precipice of giving up, despair, tears. Thank you for the realism that Genesis 3 gives us, that life is hard, but Father, would you instill hope in those hearts that they could carry on day by day, not because the circumstance gets better, not because somebody promises them something, but because they surrender and put their trust firmly in your promise, God, your grace, your power, your love. Father, as we worship you now, would you fill our hearts as we sing to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.